Welcome, everybody, to the Eyes on Big Podcast, your go-to Big Ten football podcast, brought to you by the Amador Whiskey Company. I'm your co-host, Jeffrey the Greek, joined, as always, by... This is Big Kurt here. Big Kurt, you on Twitter? I am on Twitter. I'm Big Kurt on Twitter at B1GKURT. And I am Jeffrey the Greek at Jeffrey the Greek. Thank you so much for listening and downloading the podcast, as I usually try to... Tell the listeners if the audio sounds a little bit different, it's because we got a little bit different format, which in this case is Mark Shipper with Fifth Down College Football. Mark, it's awesome to finally have you on the podcast. How are you doing today, sir? I know. What's up, guys? I've uh, I've been getting around a little bit with this with this book project and tour and stuff. And I said, as soon as I get on the eyes on big, I've made it. I'm where I want to be. So <laughs> it's uh, it's awesome to finally connect with you guys. Absolutely. Kurt? <laughs> oh, well, Mark, welcome. How you doing? Um, good to finally have you on the show. Um, why don't we kick it off with Mark? Tell us a little bit about your background, especially when it comes to college football. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so I've just been involved with the sport as a, a serious observer basically my entire life. Uh, I tell people a lot of times one of my first memories of life is actually in Kennick Stadium. I don't even know what year it was or how old I was, but I was there with my dad and my uncle. Uh, my dad went to school at University of Iowa and kept season tickets for a few years, even after we moved to Minneapolis. And, um, you know, I remember my dad and uncle saying to look for the bumblebees down in the corner, which is the Hawkeyes coming out. And, you know, I grew up meeting some of the classic 80s, early 90s Hawks. So that was my my introduction. But also because of my dad, he had a huge collection of Street and Smith's magazines going back years. And I took those as like part of my education. I read all these old Street and Smith's going back decades and was kind of a college football obsessive. And so we got a regional game. You know, sometimes you go into certain spots in the country and they don't even want to talk about teams who play somewhere else. But I've always watched this game from a, a national perspective. I, I love the different traditions in all the different parts of the countries, how they were similar but different. I think I use it as like my geography lesson on the United States. This is how I learned what this country was, where the cities were, where it's where, where the cities are, where its universities are, and um, it, it started there. So, um, you know, I was telling you guys earlier, I was born in Iowa City. I grew up in Minneapolis, another college town, a suburb of Minneapolis. And I went to school at UCLA. So um, the love of college football and college basketball as well, but college football was always number one, was uh, hugely important. I mean, that was just a, a huge jock growing up as well. So sports were in the middle of my life. And college football was number one. I actually have stuff that I I've had from childhood where I wrote about being a college football player, but not a professional football player. So that, that was how the pro game was different to me and it wasn't that interesting. College was the game. So that's kind of where I come from in terms of loving the sport. So I'm curious, what brought you out to Los Angeles for college? Uh, you know, I wanted to leave Minnesota. I had been there long enough. I went to high school. I wanted to go away somewhere to go to college. And um, it, it's, you know, when, when the opportunity comes to move to Southern California, it's a difficult one to turn down. So that opportunity came and it's an old American tradition, right? The old go West young man kind of thing when the frontier was out there. So for me, it was just going to be fun. So I went out there, started going to school, um, transferred into UCLA and that's uh, how I ended up there. And how if much, I, if I could, what, what was the time frame when you were in, in UCLA at UCLA? So I was, my Southern California experience was 2002 through 2008. 
So when I first got there, USC was just heating up into the monster era that they had. So I went to a lot of Pete Carroll USC games. I went to a lot of the USC UCLA games. Um, if I turn my camera on on the wall, Jeffrey, you'd see a big orange bowl head. I grabbed that off the wall of Joe Robbie Stadium at the USC Iowa Orange Bowl. Nice. My my dad got us tickets out there, and we uh, we were at that Orange Bowl. So I still have that. So yeah, I was there for the big USC boom, and then some some huge upsets on UCLA's end. So it was it was a good time to be there for a college football person. So I mean, where, did you get into being a Bruins? fan and and then you know you have the you have the opposite uh with usc taken off right about then i mean you know explain that to me yeah that's interesting right that's uh that's kind of a harsh decision to have to make all of a sudden um i think because it was how i grew up loving this sport like when we talk about my tour and all the games i went to USC and UCLA was interesting to me almost from like a scientific perspective, a, a sociologist perspective. I love the rivalry in the game. So to be honest with you, um, I got into reporting in Chicago news work. I didn't go into journalism school, but if I had gone to J school, I probably would have gone to USC. They have a, a well-known journalism school. And a lot of people said, if you want to write, you should go there. But I didn't want to learn to write in that way. So I studied history and went to UCLA, which is a, a far more affordable university. And in my opinion, a superior university in nearly every way, no offense to USC. Um, but I don't have the burning hatred that someone who grew up in Southern California who had to make the choice would have. I'm a little more uh, detached from it. Great. So you start fifth down college football uh, by the way, great source for, for some excellent college football history. Just point out a few of the pieces you've written. A couple different ones about Hayden Fry. Recently, one about Red Grange. You've written about, coincidentally or perhaps non-coincidentally, the fifth down game, the famous fifth down game between Colorado and Mizzou. And then some of the, some of the real far back stuff, like your Walter Eckersall piece from U of Chicago, which if you're a true old school, I mean, truly old school Big Ten fan, you know who that is, but probably most people don't. So check that out on, on uh, fifthdowncfb.com. But I want to talk about the tour of college football that you did last year. Can you explain that to the audience? Yeah, it ties into all this stuff I've been talking about in terms of how I uh, got into college football and how I interpret college football and why it's important to me is I, I saw the game as a regional two national game, meaning the regional version of the game was far more important than the national game. And it was at its best when regional champions met against other regional champions to determine, determine national champions. Part of the reason I took this tour when I did, if you read some of the pieces on my site is I've a lot of us, I'm not alone in this, but many of us have seen this coming for a long time. Now what's happening now with realignment and the game undergoing a potential full scale revolution and one of the things I said when I took this tour is I, college football is going down the old roads for a last time, and I want to get as much of it in person, the game I loved, as I could before it went away forever and you had to adjust to something else. So with that kind of idea in mind, um, I had 15 games all over the country, um, basically the most either historic or relevant rivalries games I could use to tell the bigger story of college football, where one outcome, win or loss, didn't matter so much as the story behind why these teams play each other. So games like USC, Notre Dame, 
Army, Navy, uh, Florida State, Miami, Harvard, Yale for the the origins of the game. And this was I, just all last year. Yeah, this is like I was on the yeah. road 15 weeks last year. And um, I mean, you just named off three bucket list college football games right there and, and you hit them in one calendar year. That's that's insane. Yeah, hit them in one year. And that's kind of the that's going to be the foundation of the of the book is these rivalries and how I can tell the story of the United States and college football, which to me, when you get after the Civil War in the United States, you cannot tell the story of the United States without college football. That's how integral this sport has been to the culture of this country. And I mean, through World War One, World War Two, through the Vietnam era and protests, through the integration of universities. College football has been at the heart of it for a long, long time. And I believe college football was one of the first sports to integrate across the board, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yeah, a- absolutely. Uh uh, probably the first, you know, I should make sure of that when I say it, but the first college, college football had integrated in the 1880s and 1890s. So, you know, not a full integration, but they had black athletes playing college football at universities. Um, you know, Harvard very famously had a black captain in the 1890s. So, and then in the sixties, when we, when the Southern schools were finally forced to open up their universities to uh, everyone in this country, as they should have done far, far earlier. College football is at, at the center. A lot of people argue that college football was a huge motivating factor in that because it meant keeping pace with the style of play. And uh, to, to marry two things together, uh, Hayden Fry uh, famously had Jerry Levias uh, was one of the first uh, African-American players in the old Southwest conference. You know, that's something that coach Fry was always proud of and talked about a lot. I don't know. Just, I love how you're intertwining, you know, us history with college football. I mean, that's combining two of my favorite things right there. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad that appeal. It's, 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 I think what I'm doing is going to appeal to college football people uh, like you guys, serious fans of the game, people who love this country. It's um, it's consumed largely now as an entertainment product. That's what it's become, but it was, and still is, in my opinion, but it really was uh, a part of the culture in an important way. So it's sometimes people say it's more than a game and it's really not. I mean, it kind of is, but not really. College football is more than a game to this country and has been since 1869, its first season. So looking forward to that book, I'll certainly be one of the first uh, to, to pick it up and start reading. But during your tour, you did a couple interviews that that stuck out to me. And <laughs> two of them are Steve Spurrier. You interviewed him at his restaurant. And then you also interviewed Barry Switzer. Um, you can go to Fifth Down CFB and check those out. But what I want to know is something off camera, not part of the interview. Anything you can mention that stuck out to you about either one of those guys? Were, something uh, they said or were, did? Or were you do. able to get Switzer to stop talking? <laughs> you know what had you guys asked me this question about almost any other coach i probably could have said oh you should have seen this guy off camera he was totally different when you're talking about spurrier and switzer talk about two guys who just say what's on their mind and deal with the consequences later i mean it's uh you know coach switzer on camera asked for reparations for old coaches who hadn't been paid like coaches are today uh, you know, Spurrier says whatever he says about the teams they picked up on. And I actually, you know, what was amazing about Spurrier is I think I surprised him with the question about Florida, Georgia 
in the nineties that famously Florida under Spurrier really beat up on Georgia. And they're the famous Spurrier stories about hanging half a hundred because no one had ever done it in Athens and um, kind of, kind of upon him. I asked him and I said, you know, was that really that personal of a thing for you? And he was really honest. He said, you know what, Georgia really had owned us for a long time and uh, we needed to do that to him because we could, and we needed to show him that we could. And you know what? they're free to do it to us, which they just had. I just come down from the cocktail game and Georgia pounded Florida and uh, Spurrier said, you know what? They're, they're doing it now. They're free to do it to us. So I was, I thought he might've kind of uh, skated around that question, but he was, he was dead honest on it. Kurt, I don't know. I'm wondering if you have the same kind of memory as I do. Um, growing up in big 10 country, you didn't do that. You know, you didn't run the score up on people. And I remember going to my older brother's football games at Iowa. So this would be, you know, early 90s. And then we would get to the sports column, uh, which was the big and the vine, which was the big, you know, places you would go in Iowa City to, to watch college football after the game. We'd be watching sports center highlights and you would see a score of, you know, 70 to 21 in a Florida game, whoever they were playing. And I remember the basically the table, you know, of Iowa fans are like, that's just not right. You know, that's not <laughs> that's not college football. Uh, but he was ahead of his time. I don't know. You know Kurt, did you did you well, have the same kind of experiences? My experience is just that that stood out to me, those scores. Like, I don't remember ever seeing that. And I can just remember. I don't know why, but I remember sitting in a barber chair one time watching highlights I think from the previous day it was probably Sunday I'm getting my my wig busted and I just was sitting there in awe at Terry Dean Chuck in the rock 50 60 yards in the air to Jack Jackson who was 10 yards behind the the defensive backs and they were already you know the game was already in the bag and so that, <laughs> yes my my eyes popped out and so I I certainly agree with you there yeah. Yeah. People, people don't really don't. If you were there, you remember like you guys are talking about, but it was a revolution. It was a revolution led by Spurrier and even the way they ran their offense, the mechanics of the offense, it was a fascinating thing to watch. He just did it differently than everyone else. It was like, it was a beautiful machine. And if you weren't ready to go against that Nebraska 90, 95, 96 title game showed how you could beat that offense by just destroying it physically. But if you could not, break it apart at the line of scrimmage and get to the quarterback, you were going to get absolutely filleted and it was going to go on for 60 minutes. Well, all right, let's move on to a little, um, I, I, has anybody, anybody heard there's been some shakeups here lately in, in the big 10 and, and nationally. So as we know, USC, UCLA joining the big 10 starting 2024 season, but it looks like things have cooled down, at least for now, it doesn't seem like there's going to be, any more movement in the near future, do you think? And if so, how long before the next thing happens? Yeah, great question. Uh, you know, I wish I had a lot sharper insight to say on when the next thing is going to happen. I do think the next big domino to fall, like everybody else, is, is Notre Dame's decision, I think, is going to trigger the next big round because that's the that's the, the king on the chessboard. And Notre Dame... Um, People have a lot of strong opinions on Notre Dame dropping those opinions and just looking at Notre Dame's spot in this sport. There is really no more centrally located 
football program in this sport than Notre Dame. They've been at the center of everything ever since this sport became what it was in the 1920s when Newt Rockney was there and they were um, terrorizing all the college football. So they were there at the beginning of the TV negotiations. Uh, they were there when the NCAA took TV away. They were there at this when the CFA broke away from the NCAA. And they've been the only independent team since then for the simple reason they're the only team that can still stay independent. So that leaves them in a, a unique place as a college football program. So once Notre Dame makes a decision, and I think if they make that decision, if they're going to join, it's going to be the Big Ten. I have, I have little doubt of it. And who comes with them will be the thing. Is Stanford coming with them? Is someone else coming with them? Then what happens to Oregon and Washington? And then, of course, the SEC. And what are they going to do about the ACC? I personally really hope we find a way to avoid two conferences, two mega conferences. If that happens, we're looking at, I think, the full-scale revolution to college football. And it, uh, the, the, the big change happens and we become uh, – a kind of national super league kind of game with a lot of implications for what that means for the, the teams and their universities and, and how the business of college athletics has always worked. So that's kind of what I'm looking at for the next piece to fall is going to be Notre Dame. And it could be quiet until, uh, you know, for a couple of years there that the ACC contracts are no joke. I, people talk about ESPN trying to get out of those. I have no idea why they'd want to get out of okay, those. You just, you just took my thunder, but that's yeah. that is what I've been reading into these this last week. Is you know I'm trying I I should have come up with a way to to have an analogy about the contract that ESPN has, and you know everybody talks about how bad the contract was for the ACC, and and it is, but it's the opposite for somebody, and that somebody is ESPN. I mean, right the value. Of, of of that uh, um, uh, of that product that they have, which obviously is the advertising space for for ACC games, just continues to grow in value. But yet they got it at that bottom dollar amount, you know, years and years ago. So right. it, it's it's a confluence of interests, which is cool, you know, and interesting because they also have obviously big ownership in the SEC. So I wonder if there's a power struggle between the SEC and, and ESPN where the SEC does want to take your Miamis and Florida States, but ESPN doesn't want it because they want to hold that value. It, it's something that I don't see a ton of people talking about, but yeah. I, I would love to see, I say this all the time, but I would love to see the 30 for 30 coincidentally on ESPN 20 years from now on what's going on, you know, with the ACC, SEC and ESPN. I'd have I'd have that documentary on repeat until I had it memorized exactly what happened because it's got to be fascinating. These are high level, high stakes uh, incidents happening right now. I mean, we're like in a we're in our uh, college missile crisis kind of thing. It's going to play great. out over a little more time, but um, yeah, it's it's going to be fascinating to find out what happens and to see how it finally shakes out. I mean, it's like the the potential chaos ahead is kind of wild to consider. One of my big fears of your two super conference scenario is what happens with the leftovers, because I consider myself historically a true college football fan. Didn't just follow the Big Ten, followed nationally all the conferences, not just the power conferences, group of five conferences, too. I don't want to see programs like Oregon State, uh, Cal, Texas Tech. You're sitting there right now wearing a Colorado Buffaloes. Uh, yeah, I don't want to see right. teams like that. 
marginalized. I still want them to be considered major college football. So that's one of the big fears that I have, I guess, as an Illini fan, I guess you can call me lucky if you want that um, we're in the big 10 and, and we are probably safe, but at the same time, keep adding all these programs like USC and UCLA, things never get easier for, for the Illinois of the world. They only get more difficult. So those are kind of things that I struggle with. Uh, so speaking of UCLA as a program, they've always been curious to me. I mean, when, when I was younger, they were, they were considered a power, but they have not been a college football power for a number of years. And I, I'm just not a close enough observer of UCLA football. So I guess my question, UCLA football, what gives? And, and it, additionally, UCLA fans, do they exist? What gives? <laughs> I knew that one was coming at some point. Um, great question. Big question. UCLA is an interesting program. Um, so they kind of embody in certain ways a Pac-12 issue that's been around forever, which is one foot in, one foot out. They want to be the Ivy League, but they want to play big time athletics. So the UCLA administration, academic side and athletic side, except for a few uh, notable stretches, are not aligned. So athletics does its thing. Academics does its thing. And if you when you know about college athletics, you know, you need academics aligned, particularly with football, if you want to be at your best, because exceptions have to be made for football. That's just how it is. But it's aligned with basketball. It is aligned with basketball. Basketball, you know, that's kind of that's that's UCLA's attitude. I was talking to uh, Randy Cross, the great UCLA center, 49ers, Super Bowl champion about this. And he said he played at UCLA in the mid 70s. They upset number one Ohio State in the Rose Bowl to keep Woody Hayes from winning his last national title, the Bicentennial Rose Bowl, massive game. Um, And he said the whole time they were there. uh, Dick Vermeil was the head coach. The school, the only thing the school really cared about was basketball. Basketball got all the attention. So UCLA has decided the, the prestige of John Wooden's program when it was rolling and the untouched dominance. I mean, you know, seven consecutive national championships at that level is just unfathomable. And he did it at a time when there were a lot of good players and a lot of good coaches. So it was it, it, it elevated itself so high into the ether that basketball became its own thing. And for whatever reason, the university feels like the roster size is small enough. It's not quite the behemoth football is that basketball is a more prestige brand to associate with the school. So they haven't been willing to invest in football. Terry Donahue, uh, the great UCLA coach, Jeffrey, my nightmare scenario is UCLA and Iowa meeting a Rose bowl again. And I, uh, curl up in the fetal position and, and weep for four hours, you know, not knowing what to do. Terry Donahue and UCLA famously beat Iowa's maybe best, definitely Iowa's best team under Hayden Fry in the Rose Bowl. Terry Donahue at one point won seven consecutive bowl games, three straight Rose Bowls and a Fiesta Bowl. So he's four and all on New Year's Day, had him within striking distance of the national championship every couple of years. Um, Terry Donahue's leftovers famously in 1998 had UCLA not been upset at Miami, they would have played in the first ever BCS national title game. So to get around, that's, to add, not, that's not ancient history there. You no, know? not, not at all. But that's how quickly it can come apart with football. That's how quickly it can come apart. If your school's not aligned with, with uh, producing a good football program, that's what can happen. Uh, Gene On the Block, West Coast. 
it happens. I, I'm just saying, like, yeah, there's a lot of programs within the Big Ten, and you know, I hate to say it, SEC and some in the ACC and Big Twelve, where even when they have down years, the commitment from the fans is there. I'm, I mean, oh one yeah, foot yeah, in, yeah, yeah. Off, that that's a one foot in, one foot out. That's a great way of putting it. Like, it just seems to be the entire Pac-12 fan base. Yeah, I, I was talking much more about the administration than the fans. The fans, that's an LA phenomenon. Um, they're not going to show up if you're not winning games, period. I mean, the Coliseum will be empty with USC. The Rose Bowl will be empty. Uh, Poly Pavilion will be empty. That's LA. You kind of have to know the beast in LA to understand why they have they have nine professional teams in the city, eight professional teams in the city, many universities, tons of high schools, all the entertainment in the world, the beaches, the oceans, the theme parks. So you're fighting for the, you truly are fighting for the entertainment dollar in Los Angeles. Add to that prices and driving around that massive city. If you're not worth watching, they're not going to be there for you, period. So that's just a fact of life. Um, It's better in other imprints. The Bay Area, you can kind of say the same as LA, except the Bay Area just doesn't like football all that much anymore. They're just not into it. Washington gets great support. Oregon gets great support. Um, You know, uh, but those are more traditional college environments. Seattle's a little different, but, you know, Eugene, Oregon, that's a classic college environment. That's an Iowa City-like environment. That's an SEC-like environment. It's a rural place where the school is the ticket. So with LA, it's just uh, urban schools used to really punch hit hard in, in college athletics. The urban schools have taken a step back as time has gone on and they really have to find ways to engage with fans because there's uh, there's just other options. So Greg had mentioned UCLA fans. I mean, do, do we kind of, are, are they better than we give them credit for? Is there something? Yeah. Yeah. They're one there's specifically football fans. Yes. Yeah. When they're there, they're great. So my, um, my 2006 year, my junior year, we had USC in the Rose Bowl. Uh, the year before, UCLA had gone 10 and 2. Uh, no, yeah, 10 and 2, I believe, or whatever. They were one or two last team heading into the USC game at the Coliseum. USC was playing for the undefeated national title season to go play Texas and went up being the Rose Bowl. USC smoked UCLA 66 to 19 Leinert and Bush just went berserk. UCLA got shown to be a paper tiger. Uh, the next year though, USC was back again, national title berth on the line coming up against a okay UCLA team. Good enough to go to a small bowl. The Rose bowl had 93,000 people in it. Uh, it was one of the great college atmospheres I've ever been to in my life. I've been to many of them and UCLA upset them 13 to nine and kept them out of the national title game. Maybe, you know, probably the game of that season, the regular game, regular season. Game. It, it was a monster. It was and the Rose bowl was absolutely rocking that day. So in LA, man, you got to get them out. I get, I get why people say what they say. It's um, you know, it can be kind of embarrassing to look at, but at the same time, if they get good again, you're going to see the big crowds again. So that's just how it is. One last thing on UCLA, just yeah. to get your point. Um, I, I like Rick Knight, Neuheisel for the most part on Sirius XM, and he <laughs> talks about how playing in the the Rose Bowl as UCLA's home stadium is actually yeah. detriment. Uh, because it just it doesn't lack the pizzazz when you're playing in it six, seven, eight times a year. Whereas a, a different fan base and crowd traveling in is very excited 
to be at the Rose Bowl, so you wind up with no home crowd advantage. I think that would be huge for the first couple years in the Big Ten. Illinois fans, can you imagine Nebraska fans overtaking, you know, the the, the Rose Bowl for the first? Anyways, any thoughts on that topic right there? Yeah, 100%. Rick Neuheisel is very much right about that. Um, here's the here's the story about the Rose Bowl. UCLA moved in there in 1982. Uh, UCLA is a much younger university than most schools. Founded in 1919, they started playing football right away. Very bad for the first five years, then started to build steadily. 1928, they joined the PCC. Um The Coliseum was built in the early 20s. USC played there immediately. UCLA did not. UCLA moved in after USC. So it was kind of like USC's home stadium that UCLA shared with them. That went on from the 20s all the way up to 1982 when UCLA decided it needed its own place. It didn't want to share a venue with with USC anymore. There are a bunch of other considerations, but essentially is get them in separate spots. UCLA is built in West Los Angeles. It's one of the densest population centers on earth. If they could build a stadium on campus, they would love to do it. They can't. So they moved to the Rose Bowl. The Rose Bowl is 30 miles off campus. Um, Exactly what you're saying. Do you want to go 30 miles six times a year for an eight-hour day? Or are opposing fans going to fly in from all over the country to fill it up while you watch on TV? It's, it's, It's another, I would agree it is. A detriment. So you have to be really good to fill up the Rose Bowl because of the effort that's required to get. It really is. It's a bowl stadium. If you guys have been out to the Rose Bowl, it's built down in a big isolated valley in Pasadena. You park on a huge golf course. It's absolutely stunningly beautiful. It's gorgeous. But it's something if you did it once a year, no problem. You start talking about doing it over and over and you got an inconvenience rather than a great time on campus on Saturday. So it's just one of the things that UCLA has to accept and battle against, but there's no excuses. They just have to do better about it. Okay. And I'm sorry, we, we've got you here as a UCLA grad, so I'm going to take advantage of it. Yep. Uh, you know, this, this offer to go to the Big Ten, of course, you're not going to pass that up because of the money, but it doesn't, it doesn't get any easier for UCLA either. They haven't had a great go the last 20 or so years. It's going to be even tougher now playing in the Big Ten. How do UCLA fans feel about that? Well, I think everyone loves it. Um, you know, when I was talking to you guys, we kind of got our wires crossed about administration or fans and who supports who. When I'm talking about the administration supporting the school, I mean, the administration pays for nothing, helps with nothing, makes no concessions. So UCLA lost $60 million in the COVID years, by far the most in the conference. Uh, they're, they're running a deficit of like $130 million. In their athletic department, they have 25 teams, 700 athletes, and um, a lot of pressure for most of those teams to win. So what I hope about this is Gene Block is the chancellor at UCLA. He's the most anti-football chancellor you could ever come across. He's every bit as bad as Stanford. He doesn't care. I think you could hit him in the head with the football and he wouldn't know what it was. But what I'm hoping is the Big Ten money is going to be enough in UCLA's athletic department that they're going to have the freedom to treat football like they should have been treating it all along. Um, Another element with that with UCLA is Larry Scott in the Pac-12, who was the Pac-12 commissioner, who's really did more than anything to to downturn this conference into a money-losing proposition and into an obscure proposition on the West Coast. Um. Scott didn't lead with football. 
in college athletics, you lead with football. It's your money maker. It's your, uh, it's your show pony to use a new Heisel show reference. <laughs> um, that's how you make money and that's how you advertise your school. So the PAC 12 is the conference of champions in, uh, you know, soccer and, uh, water polo and a bunch of badass sports. These dudes are, and, and women are serious athletes. It's awesome when you see it, but it's not the big dollar thing that you need. So I hope the big $10 allows UCLA football to lead the university. They won't have to ask the school for money anymore. They'll fund it to the level they need to fund it. They'll promote it to the level they need to promote it. And then UCLA can become what it is when these things are aligned. When you look at the decades, when UCLA's administration and athletic department are aligned, those are the best years in, in UCLA's history. And they're very good years. I mean, top, top 15 nationally year after year after year, if not contending for national championships. So um, that's the hope with the Big Ten move. But you're right, week to week, and we don't know what the travel schedule is going to look like it's going to be a grind and there's going to be a lot of good football teams to beat. Historically, UCLA has done well against the big 10, but we'll see if it continues when they're in the same league. Um, when we saw Oklahoma and Texas, they seem to be kind of tethered together to go yeah. to the SEC. It's my recollection that USC was kind of driving this on their own to get out of the PAC 12 and into a more financially stable conference. Then all of a sudden UCLA came in at the 11th hour is what it seems to me. Is that your take on, on the deal as well? No, actually. Um, th this is the third time USC and UCLA have threatened to leave the West Coast League. They finally made good on it. Um, go back to when it was just USC and the PCC in 1925. Stanford and Cal cut off all athletic re relations with USC. They, they considered they said USC was too exuberant about athletics. They cared too much about winning in football. So Cal, when, when was, when, who, when, I, who was this? 1925. If you read my okay. piece, I wrote a piece on the breakup of the PCC conference. I have this in there. So they broke off athletic relations. Uh, they reconciled. USC came back. Okay. These tensions in the PCC between Cal and Stanford and everyone else and Washington and the rural schools up there eventually broke the league apart in the late 1950s, 51 through 58, they went through a major crisis. Um, the rural schools were in some ways dominating the big money urban schools at this time, USC, UCLA, uh, Washington out of Seattle, Cal Stanford in the Bay area. And they said, they essentially rebelled against it. The big schools and said, the, the tyranny of these little schools is going to stop. We, we have a different situation than you guys in terms of the size of our stadiums, the amount of revenue we can bring in the kind of athletes we can get. And we're not going to have Corvallis, Oregon, uh, suspending us from the Rose bowl for, uh, buying a recruit, a meal on his visit. We're not going to have it happen anymore. At that time, USC and UCLA both threatened to leave. Um, the 1950s was UCLA's single greatest decade. Red Sanders coach there went 66 and 19 during his tenure, uh, three straight championships, national championship, Heisman trophy winner. Um, sorry, the Heisman Trophy winner came later. Everything else was there. Um, uh, so but what you're saying is there was a precedent that had been set. There, there was a precedent that said, yeah. So USC and UCLA said, we will play an independent national schedule. We don't need you guys. Airplane travel is coming in. We will make more money on our own than dealing with you guys in this conference and we'll leave. And so what ended up happening is more tension came into play, but the conference disintegrated. 
completely. PCC went away. It was reformed as the AAUW, Athletic Association of Western Universities, uh, Stanford, Cal, Washington, uh, UCLA, USC. Um, and then it built back up to the Pac-8, the Pac-10, and the Pac-12. So in 78, when it was going to become the Pac-10, Arizona and Arizona State were going to join. Stanford and Washington tried to block it. They said they're not to our standards. We don't need them in our league. The TV money isn't that big a deal. They can't come in. USC's athletic director stood up at that meeting and said, if you don't allow these teams in, we're leaving. <laughs> UCLA's rep went out to UCLA's chancellor and said, hey, the USC said they're going to leave if they don't let in Arizona, Arizona State. UCLA's guy said, go right back in there and stand up right next to him and say, you're leaving. We'll, we'll leave too. We'll both leave this league if you don't let them in. It worked. Washington, Stanford, back down. Arizona, Arizona State joined. So flash forward to today and the dismal Pac-12 deal, the horrible revenues and the, the bleak prospect for the future for the league. And it was U USC, I believe, went first, but I'm sure they went to uh, UCLA's athletic department quickly and said, listen, if we're going to get out of here, we're a package deal. We just watched Oklahoma and Texas rivals come together and do it. We move the needle a month, enough as teams that we will get that revenue level to a spot where it's good for the conference to split it with us because everybody gains. So I'm, I'm from what I've heard and from what I believe about what's happened in the past, USC and UCLA were together on this fairly early. Wow. Yeah, you bring an interesting point. I wonder at what point, how many teams does it take in these two, you know, supposed potential super conferences to dilute the money enough where it's not worth adding more? I, I have to think adding Washington and Oregon is still a, a positive for the Big Ten. But then going beyond that, I keep hearing Stanford, Cal. To me, that's the point where, OK, you're starting to water it down and, and it start, everyone's starting to get less of a slice of the pie. I don't know what that tipping point is, but I think it's got to be somewhere around 20 teams. Yeah, uh, great question. For what I've read from like John Wilner, I don't know if you guys know him, Wilner Hotline, he writes out for the San Jose Mercury News. He's the, he's the Pac-12 guru, and um, he has a lot of great contacts. And the numbers he was throwing out was the Big Ten now needs to add like $128 million in value for it to be split amongst its teams and be profitable for everyone. And like he had Washington and Oregon in like the 60 to $80 million range if they just added those two. So not even close. Hmm. Um, the deal with Stanford, I think, would be they'd come with Notre Dame. Uh, Notre Dame wants its coast-to-coast -coast schedule and wants its traditional rivals to continue playing them. So I think that's where Stanford would make sense. I think we're at a point right now that unless the sport is going full revolution – other than a very few teams led again by Notre Dame, I don't know that it is valuable to add teams at this point. They're, they're at a kind of a saturation level unless you go big, big. So in a way, money has led to all of this and money could wind up stopping it. I would, yeah, I would say that it's uh, follow the money. It's all about the money. So, I mean, do you think there's any consideration to the fact that there's nobody right now for USC and UCLA to play in their area other than themselves. I mean, they're always going to be getting on a, like I, I know uh, football teams travel private air. Okay. They got their own airplane, but right. you're still talking about six, seven hours in the air 
to, you know, to get to these other big 10, you know, areas, I, I, it just, I don't get me wrong. I know geography has been pushed way down and we've seen that over and over again with expansion, but two or three teams to add along with UCLA and USC, just, it just seems to make sense. It does make sense from that perspective. And it also makes sense. It makes sense when you're talking about the, the money numbers I was talking about with Wilner, there are, there are considerations above just pure value um, with Washington, Oregon. One of them is the geographical spot you're talking about. The other is university status. It's, it used to be pure TV household numbers was kind of what drove the television deals, but there's so many other ways to get your media delivered these days beyond television sets that brand value is important too. And so you look at Oregon's football brand and Washington's football and university brand, those are important things. And add the geography to it, you could have a West Coast loop for the West Coast teams and a division that made almost like a I, I hate to uh, pollute our beautiful college game with NFL talk, but kind of like an NFL situation where uh, divisions jump out and play other teams around the country, but also come back and play against themselves primarily twice a year in the NFL. Um, it makes sense to us, but I don't know how much it makes sense or even matters to them. There's a, do you guys know about the airplane conference from the middle of 20th century? No. There, there was a thing, the guy who ended up being the commissioner of the Pac-12, Tom Hamilton, he was a star at Navy on Navy's 1926 national title team. He was the executive officer on the USS Enterprise in World War II to Bull Halsey. So a, a substantial guy, middle of the 20th century, along with some other people, he came up with the concept of the airplane conference. And it was a fully national conference from East Coast to West Coast, North to South, they were going to take the best programs in the country, turn them into a league, sell that league to TV and fly all over and play each other. And it got well along in the discussions. The thing that actually tanked it, believe it or not, is the service academies were going to be included. Remember, this is post-World War II and they were they were still pretty mighty. Um, the, the, the actual, the Pentagon said they didn't want the service academies focusing on football in that matter. They're training officers for the military. We can't go all in on football in that, in, to that degree. So this idea uh, in college athletics of traveling all over the country, it actually, it's been around since jet travel came into play. Amazing. I had never heard that. Google that thing. You'll yeah. be, you'll read that and your jaw will just drop. It, it, it's, it's, it's a wild story. Great little nugget there. Thanks for that. Okay. Let's uh, move on to the Midwest. How about that? Let's talk about the Big Ten and the 2022 season. Uh, any any surprises that you see happening this year? Any predictions that you just want to throw out there for the upcoming and, year? And one thing I would throw out is, is there like a uh, prediction and, and uh, that you've seen over and over again for a certain team or against a certain team in the Big Ten where you're surprised, you know, that, that it's it's been the common, you know, prediction that you've seen? Uh, you know, there there are a few, you know, um, let's let's see here. Your first your first question was, who do I 
What was your first question? Well, Kurt, sorry. Any, just anything that you want to throw out there, whether it be a surprise team. Okay. Or, or... Okay. Well, what is uh is Ohio state playoff contender? Is that a surprise or is that after a year away? Or is that considered that considered probably pretty, pretty standard information there, right? Hey, how about this? Let me ask, let me ask this. Like definitely Ohio state is, is a college football playoff contender. <laughs> right. Um, I, but with that being said, uh, to throw a rock at the Buckeye Hornets nest, <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of issues with that team that people are just completely ignoring. Um, the tight ends, the tight end room has been almost completely decimated and they ran a lot of two tight end sets last year. That's, I know that's maybe nitpicking the offense, but that's one thing. Sure. The offensive line is still gelling a little bit. And then you go on the opposite side. I mean, we're talking about a completely different concepts on defense and man, everybody is just, they they ignore it at all. They have a great quarterback and wide receivers and that's all you hear about. (laughs) Right. I think the assumption is, you know, it's funny. I was looking at, I was looking at some Ohio state stuff and it's like, they didn't make the CFP for the first time in days, in days, tenure, you know, and that was considered a down season was them winning the Rose bowl. So it's got insane with Ohio state in terms of how people make the assumptions that that you're talking about that just, they're just going to be back new defensive coordinator, replacing a lot of guys. Um, but they're by the way, not hard to picture all those things. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you just bet on their offense showing up on the field and just scoring too many points for most people to beat. So I agree with you. There are issues in that, that offensive line will be interesting, but they, they never seem to actually have any real problems at the offensive line. Not, not to any extent. Um, anyone really does. I do think it's interesting. They open with Notre Dame. Um, I don't say upset alert or anything because Notre Dame is, we're going to find out what Notre Dame's about now with the new coach, but I like that as just a game, a non-con game, and test it out and see how it goes. Um, yeah, um, as far as the Big Ten, you know, Mel Tucker is going to be interesting. Um, Mel Tucker's a guy who he's a good football coach. He he's proved that, but he's not a, a very experienced football coach in terms of doing it year after year. So he was good at Colorado in his one year. Uh, slow start at Michigan State under very difficult circumstances. Excellent uh, the next year. But what's going to happen this year? I'm, I, I am interested to watch Michigan State and to see um, how they come back with these expectations. Michigan State under D'Antonio, I would say, other than much, much earlier, D'Antonio is probably the high point of modern Michigan State football. Would you guys agree with that in terms of who they beat um, and the heights they reached? Sure. If you do, I mean, if you do research on Michigan State football, it's been a darn good top twenty-five level college football program for a long, long time. Um, you know, I hear a lot of people say Mel Tucker caught lightning in a bottle last year. Yeah, that's probably true, but he owned the bottle that caught the lightning. You know, so he he, right. he deserves credit for that. But what you bring up is very interesting in that there is a certain you know season vet type of thing that college coaches need to bring to the table to, to keep success right. like that up and running. It's not anti Sparty to say there's reason to have doubts with that, to see what it, what it's going to look like in, in year two. Right. I don't even know. Yeah. Yeah. Doubt, I guess is kind of where I'm just looking to see how it goes. I'm, I'm like, uh, I hang back and watch for a while. I don't always feel the need to make uh 
proclamations on what's going to happen. So Michigan State, you asked about stuff that you hear over and over. I just hear the assumption that it's all going to keep going like it did. And what I'm saying is that was an excellent season and that's no guarantee. I brought up D'Antonio. The reason I did is because he was, you know, from, he had a span where he went three and two against Ohio state. And then Michigan is 10 and four or something. in their last like 14 against Michigan. So I don't know that there's been an era in the big one, when Michigan state has been that good against Ohio state and Michigan at the same time. So Tucker's taking over a thing that has been very good recently, but we're going to see if we can keep doing it. I guess there's no reason to doubt him. He seems like an excellent football coach to me, but we'll, we'll see going forward. Um, if he I, I would up. say, I think he's an excellent program leader. I'm still kind of interested to see how much of a football coach he is, you know, adapting yeah. to the times and whatnot. Well, he's, he's doing a great job continuing to attract talent to East Lansing. Oh, so man, I just saw it a list of their recruits that they've already had committed and they are getting close to man. He's, he is bringing an sec recruiting mentality to that. And typically that pays off. I think that's probably one of his strengths. He seems like a great recruiter. He just, uh, he's got a personality that, that appears to relate to kids that age in the right way and sells an experience that relates, uh, in the right way. Uh, yeah. You know, another team I'm looking at, I don't, I don't know what you guys think, but Penn state is an interesting team this year. Um, I pivotal think Sean, year. pivotal year, p- pivotal year for their, for their coach and their quarterback. I think Sean Clifford is a little kind of casually maligned. Um, he has potential. He has talent. He can be a very good quarterback. And if he is, I think Penn state's a pretty tough out. I have I have seen good Sean Clifford. Sometimes you would think by Twitter there is no good Sean Clifford. No, right. Good Sean Clifford is darn good. I do think there has been a lot of you know things outside of his control with offensive coordinators moving around and whatnot. Right. I don't think it's his fault that they haven't been able to run the ball. You right. Know, right. Those right. Things can get even improved. They don't have to be great, but improved. It, it, it's interesting to see. Um, if I mean. Even if you throw, so if you throw out the COVID year, because it was just so wonky for Penn State in the COVID year. Right. Last year was still a difficult year for Penn State, but they were humming along at the beginning of the year until they had injuries. Every time I think of a positive, I can think of a negative with Penn State, but the the opposite is true too. Like uh, Sean Clifford and Penn State right now, and, and maybe you put their coach in there too, it's, it's all an enigma wrapped in a riddle for me. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. I actually have one of my questions on them is O-line run game. That's going to be so so key for their offense. Um, Franklin, year nine is kind of amazing to me. I can't believe he's been there nine years already. And then bringing in Manny Diaz with the D. I don't know what your guys' thoughts are on Manny Diaz. Manny Diaz to me, and we'll see how he works out up in Penn State, but he is – and I, I don't say this with any disrespect, he's a coordinator to me. I think he's more comfortable in that position. I think he's better with those uh, boiled down duties. And I think Penn State has an opportunity. They lost, I think Penn State lost seven guys off their defense. So they're going to be filling a lot of positions for the first time, which is always they got, tough. They got talent. But they have talent. Exactly. So Manny Diaz, I don't, I don't, do you guys have any thoughts on Manny Diaz? He, to me, he's an interesting new hire in the Big Ten. 
Well, interesting for sure. I mean, I definitely agree with you. He's a coordinator, not so much a program leader. He's one of those guys that has, he's done great things at places, but he's also done awful things. So you don't really know what you're going to get with Manny Diaz, even as a coordinator. So I don't know. I'm, I'm not going to say it's not going to work out. Um, he's had some, some success in the past. So I'm just kind it of just, in, in wait and see mode. It all, it all feels feast or famine. Yeah. Yeah. I'd agree with that. It, uh, you know, I'm kind of hop. Is it cool? Just kind of hop around here a little bit with these big sure. 10 observations. Okay. Cool. Go for it. Yeah. I'm just, I'm just looking at the West right now. The West is, is going to be interesting again. Uh, um, Wisconsin and Iowa. Um, just to start up at the top, the two teams are usually re- of recent vintage fighting for the, the divisional crown, um, other than Northwestern hopping in every few years to, to upset everyone. Even years. To um, be even years. I know it's so weird how it works. Um, I, Iowa, Wisconsin, you know, for those of us who watched a long time and Jeffrey, you know, the Iowa, Wisconsin series used to be pretty unbalanced in favor of Iowa until Barry Alvarez got to Wisconsin, which already has been a while ago now. And since then it has turned in Wisconsin's favor, but it's like Wisconsin plays a lot of Iowa football. And so when you watch those two teams play each other, it's like, um, it's not exactly the Spider-Man versus Spider-Man battle, but it's kind of like that. So I do think good, West, good defenses, mediocre quarterback play. I mean, that's, that's, that's dead on for both of them. There are many, many similarities. So that's for both those teams. That's going to be going to be a key too. the quarterback play. Um, Spencer Petras, uh, you're, you're the Hawkeye guy. I mean, you know, the, it's, it's interesting to me to watch a guy with so many physical skills to play the position and the body type to play the position but struggle at times to execute the position on the field. You can, you can make criticisms of play calling. I, I've done it many times, many have, but there have also been many times when there's been the right play on and the execution hasn't been there. The bowl game against Kentucky being like a supreme example of missing on plays that could have put the dagger in the heart. So I don't know, when you guys look at those two teams, Wisconsin, Iowa, um, do you see them at the top of the division? Where, where do you see them shaking out this year? No, I mean, I got to, I'll, I'll start digging deeper as we get deeper into July and obviously August. Um, I don't know. I, you know, the West, I wish people would view it as it's just really interesting because you, it, it is not dominated by one team. Nobody would think it was crazy if Minnesota won the division. I, I Purdue is getting a lot of fanfare right now for being another team. You know, I mean, Honestly, like it, it I, can Nebraska all of a sudden can all the stars line up? You know, I mean, obviously there is the desire from the fan base, you know, for that to happen. To me, it's an interesting league, if only for the fact that it, it seems to be, you know, aesthetically challenging a lot of times, especially for fans outside of the Big Ten West. Oh God. Yeah, I know. It's, it's hard to deal with that stuff. No, you're totally right. Minnesota, Nebraska, the spoiler makers, Penn state plays Purdue to open the season, I believe on a Thursday night, uh, Penn state hasn't had the problem with Purdue. Other schools have had Ohio state, Iowa being notable examples, um, others as well, but that Penn state Purdue game, even though it's not, you know, divisional, that's an interesting game to open the year. And then, uh, Nebraska, who knows? I mean, I mean, week zero, 
we get the appetizer with Illinois, Wyoming, and then Northwestern, Nebraska. I mean, yeah, right off the bat. That, and I think actually that might be reversed. I think Nebraska, because um, it, it's since it's in Ireland, I think they're playing it at night, which will be early here. So, um, I mean, that nor- Northwestern, Nebraska game, like I'm already geeked for it. I'm always going to be geeked for the first live college football of the year, but right. that could potentially set the season tone for both of those schools. The the closer we get to kickoff, there's going to be more, you know, butt clenching that's going to be happening from one particular fan base on that team or on that game. It's going to be crazy. So we've talked about a lot of changes here in college football. My philosophy with college football is the more things change, the more they tend to stay the same. Uh, so I, I tend to just lean towards the, the tried and true, Iowa, Wisconsin at the top. I haven't done my deep dives yet, but that's kind of where my my head goes. Now, the one missing there, though, that I didn't mention that that we kind of just talked about is Northwestern. Um, they've been, you know, obviously very good and won a couple divisions here, but there was a big change there last year, and that was Mike Hankwitz retiring, and things did not look the same. I'm wondering how much that is a true difference maker in the West. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, we have to find out about that. Northwestern was another team I was going to ask you guys about and talk about a little bit. We're in an even year, as we just mentioned, um, generally under Pat Fitzgerald, if they've done poorly, they bounced back. Well, that's been a consistent occurrence over time. It couldn't have got much worse than it did last year. It, that was one of those years where you watch it and it's like, wow, did this thing, did we just watch this thing come apart at the chassis and can they put it back together? Pat Fitzgerald, of course, gets the benefit of the doubt and he's going to get several years to have the benefit of the doubt. So watching their entire bounce back uh, this year is going to be interesting. I was looking at their schedule. They play both Ohio State and Penn State in uh, out of the division. Yep. Um, so I think, I think, I think think every Wisconsin, Iowa, Minnesota, definitely Illinois fan, they all feel the same thing right now, which is there's this confidence underneath the surface that we're afraid to let out that something is drastically wrong with Northwestern. But then, you know, that every time you say that out loud, it somehow metaphorically feeds the beast that is Fitzgerald. But then you think back to yourself, but Hankowitz is gone. And I, I really think that might be the DNA. And even me saying this out loud, Kurt's going to probably punch me in the face next time he sees me. <laughs> I'm, I'm giving it strength just by talking about it right now. Well, I'm, I'm feeling the same thing. Um, I'd hate to admit it. And if there was someone like a Clayton Thorson or a Brett Bassnay, a leader at the quarterback position, I might feel a little different. They don't seem to have you know, a proven commodity there. They've never been the kind of team that has huge playmakers at the skill position on offense. But, you know, when they've, when they've had their great years, they've had a good leader at quarterback. You don't see yeah. that. So it, th- this would, I'm not doubting Pat Fitzgerald. Uh, he, to me, is still the best coach in the Big Ten. But this is going to take some serious wizardry. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Uh, Illinois, what, is that the last game of the year this year? Yes. Okay. Northwestern, okay. Yeah, no, I was just looking back to remember. That was Penn State. We got the 9 OT Illinois game last year, right? 
Yeah, that just yep. replayed yesterday on Big Ten Network, actually. If we could get another one of those, that'd be great. Um, I know T in the big, I wouldn't mind. And how about how about the fact that we got this deep in? <laughs> and we haven't even talked about Michigan, who won the Big Ten last year and got to the college football playoff. They did lose a lot, but have you guys spent any time looking at their schedule right now? Yeah, a little bit. I was just going to grab it right now. They They could play like – they could play mediocre football for Michigan levels and still be seven and one, eight and one. The the their schedule sets up as favorable as you will see a schedule set up for a Big Ten East team. Their their first test is October one at Iowa. Right. October one. Yep. Uh, they backed out of a game. UCLA and Michigan, coincidentally enough, were supposed to play home and home starting this year. Uh, guess what got in the way? Money and home football games. Michigan wanted seven home games a year. They canceled out on the home and home with UCLA. They paid the Bruins like 1.3 million to get out of the game. And well, they've put- got eight home games this year. So they're getting their money's worth. Jeez, no kidding. And it's, it starts with all home Colorado state, Hawaii, Connecticut, Maryland. They do not leave uh, Ann Arbor for the entire month of September. Taking a, a page from the old Florida playbook right there. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> get, the, get the squad warmed up and uh, avoid any losses until halfway through the season. It is an amazing schedule. Yeah. Um, and then after Iowa, they go to Indiana and then Penn State. And that's uh, so Iowa, Penn State, and then Michigan State the last week of October. That's uh, for, Mich- for a Michigan team, for the best Michigan team we've seen. In many years, obviously replacing a lot of guys, but the role they seem to be on, that sets up as well for a back-to-back great year schedule as you could possibly ask for. And then going into, they haven't won in Ohio State since 2000. We, we all pretty much came up in the 90s watching college football. We were there when Ohio State couldn't get past Michigan. Cooper. Ohio State had these powerhouse teams and Michigan kept knocking them off and Michigan had the national title in the nineties. It's been strange to watch that thing reverse to the extent it has a lot of stuff goes into that. I think Michigan has had to re-identify themselves uh, particularly with Detroit and the way Detroit has changed in not that much time. Michigan has always recruited the Midwest, you know, Rust Belt area, but they had a base in Detroit population two and a half million whatever it was a ton of high school athletes a ton of great athletic talent michigan built foundations out of michigan and then reached out for other pieces michigan has had to reorient and really become a national recruiting team in my opinion that's what i see them doing i think that's what they're going to have to do going forward well ohio state recruits nationally but their base around their university has stayed fairly steady compared to what Michigan's undergone with Detroit. So to watch Ohio state pull away from Michigan as it has, you know, that was my, that was my second to last game last year was the Ohio state at Michigan. It was snowing in Ann Arbor. And uh, I was there for that upset. And I got to tell you, to see Michigan win that again and the upset and have the rivalry feel like that rivalry again, that was, that was a, a special Saturday to be a part of. So Michigan going back to Ohio state this year, Man, I think it's either going to be an Ohio State butt kicking or this thing's going to be back on at least for this two-year period. Could be. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? Ohio State either fires back or Michigan is is right back in their face again and says that right. wasn't a it, fluke. 
and the way I I semi-famously predicted mid-October last year that Michigan was going to run the table and beat Ohio State, I got laced by Ohio State fans after I put that out there. One wow. of being correct, the same things I pointed out mid-October, whatever it was last year, there's still a concern for me for Ohio State and still a strength for Michigan, namely a, an offensive line that bullies people around you know, until I see different out of Ohio State, I don't. I don't mean to besmirch Ohio State here. By the way, Ohio State is an absolute beast, uh, but that still is something that would concern me if I'm an Ohio State fan when I maybe had a couple cocktails and I'm being truthful with myself. <laughs> sure, right. Um, if we're through the Big Ten, one other thing I just kind of like, and I, I think we're all on the same page. But I just want to say it again. I mean, I know we're on the same page. Um, I, 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 we, we should matter, meaning us college football fans, our voices should matter. <clears throat> it seems like across the board, when I read Twitter and you hear people talk, nobody wants to see this big conglomeration of just two conferences. I hope somehow our voices ring true. Like, um, I don't know if you guys saw it was all over Twitter, but there was a West Virginia fan that talked about how bad going to the big 12 has been like taking away the regional foes that you're familiar with. Just, it just leaves you with an icky feeling and you're just not as committed to your team. Um, so I hope a- the ACC lives, you know, um, the PAC 12, I'll be completely honest with you. They were dying. They've been dying for over a decade. I don't think there was ever any saving the PAC 12. I don't think there's anybody to quote unquote blame but I just hope the ACC survives. I hope what's left of the Pac-12 and the Big 12 can join together. I hope cooler heads prevail, and that's what we see moving forward. Yeah, I would um, I would disagree on the Pac-12's death being inevitable. Uh, the Pac-12 is a prestige league. I mean, one of the one of the key leagues in this. I'd say it was you know, Big Ten, SEC, Pac-12. That would have been the trifecta at the top of the sport. Pac-12 has done it to themselves. They made terrible decisions, but I don't, I don't even want to get into that. We just disagree a little on that. It's no big deal. The rest of it, we are totally in agreement on. Um, I talk to people about this stuff because if you follow me on Twitter, you'll see me just kind of saying what I think is going to happen and just talking about how it's going to be. The reason I do that is because I've been bracing myself for this for a long time. Um, in the 90s, I watched the Southwest Conference go away. Uh, I watched the BCS form, which, which realigned the postseason. Uh, Kurt, we've talked about this multiple times, the bowls and polls era. Uh, that was college football at its absolute finest. It was the totally insane, irrational co-national champion. Everybody has a good time and, and enjoys their season game. The rivalries were important. The, um, the homecoming was important. Who won the national title if you weren't involved? You, you took note of it. Didn't really matter. I showed you a pennant earlier, 1987 Holiday Bowl. That 1987 Holiday Bowl for Iowa and Wyoming fans who went out there and played in that game, that was that was a wonderful season for them. And they, a, they capped it off in San Diego with a little college football vacation. The sports reoriented itself into a championship or bust mentality. The BCS started that. The CFP was checkmate for the television networks as far as the postseason goes. 
So as I've watched Texas and Texas A&M go away, as I've watched uh, leagues dissolve and rivalries not matter, Pitt, Penn State go away, um, the West Virginia rivalries you were just talking about, those games go away or, or start to matter so much less that it just wasn't even important. This sport has been sort of stripped apart, sort of strip mined and picked to pieces and organized for television networks to maximize on. I don't think we can turn it back. Uh, there's just no going back because it's not built to revert to earlier stages. It's built to build the new ones. Uh, the, the, the optimistic perspective I have on that is college football has been changing since its outset. This sport has changed across decades steadily. Only the sport's intense conservatism at the top has allowed it to change this slowly. Had it not been college presidents and chancellors and athletic directors putting like a full breaking process on this thing, TV would have bought this game up decades ago. So in a way, we got more time than we should have with the game we loved. Um, best case scenario is they build this thing the best way it can be built, and we get a fun game going forward in the future. But that that old game, it pains me to say, is something for like us to talk about and reminisce on. This new generation coming up is not even going to – they'll never have known it. We definitely have a romanticized memory of college football because you're right. It, it has been changing more than any any guys about our age or whatever give it credit for. It was a little more subtle, so it just it didn't hit us in the face quite as much. Um, with that being said, I hope there are younger fans coming up that are going to love the sport as much as the three of us do because if not, these changes – will wind up squeezing out the money down the line if there literally isn't us, the fans. Kurt Kurt famously has championed that. I have joined on. Like, we matter, and, and it needs to be taken into consideration. Yeah. Yeah, Kurt, did you want to say something? Sorry, I don't want to interrupt you. No, um, I mean, I know that <laughs> – I know you're on board with me. That was – to me, the the glory days of college football. I truly believe this. The best times of college football were the '80s and '90s, and I I know I'm I'm biased, but I've studied you know from way back prior to that, and I've I've lived everything since then. And to me, even down everything down to the uniforms, it was the best in the '80s and '90s. Doesn't get better than that. Right, right. You know that point, you excluding, guys, were... excluding the Iowa banana peels. Yeah, we can do without those. Those are we can do hey, but those. by the way, that was Coach Fry. That was Coach Fry trying to be ahead of his time. He just kind of misfired a little bit. Uh, he he hit on a lot of them. He missed on that one. Um, <laughs> that thing you're talking about about fans potentially going away. I agree with that 100. The reason this game is what it is is because of how much its people love it. Because it's it's more than a game. It's a it's a folk game. It's part of the land. It's part of your identity. You grow up with these teams, schools, colors, being a part of who you are in society. It's like you are of these teams. So if you get a thing where you're with the, it's an NFL like environment where this is an entertainment property. Do they have a good team? Do they do not? Are they making the playoffs this year? Are they not? You've set up a situation where people can come and go as they please. Whereas college football at its best, people don't come and go as they please. They're there every year, no matter what. So that could be a fundamental change to the model of this game that they're not thinking through. I, I completely agree with you guys on that. Like to me, how you, you kind of compare this is 
the only two rivalries you got, Kurt, you'd be the better person to, to agree or disagree with this, but uh, uh, Bears, Packers, Vikings, Packers, those are rivalries where even when the teams are, you know, well, the Packers are never bad, but if you could imagine a time where the Packers and the Bears were both bad, those fan bases will still want to win those games. They'll show up at the game, but that's rare in, in the NFL. There just isn't any rivalries in the NFL. If we strip away that from college football where, you know, Iowa, Minnesota, where the fans don't care at the end of the year or, or you know, heaven forbid, Auburn, Alabama or Georgia, Florida, I could go on and on. Like if the only thing that matters to those fan bases is the championships and not the the actual tussle itself, you know, whatever weekend in the fall that game's played, that's that's what I'm afraid of. Like that stuff always needs to matter. Rivalries need to matter. Yeah, I think that's a real fear. I think that's a real fear. This game is built on rivalries. That tour I took last year was based on rivalries, using those rivalries to tell the story of college football and its place in the United States. So that's no coincidence. The reason I took the rivalries is because they are the sport. Um, The one kind of the one momentary flash of good news we had in this realignment era was Texas and Oklahoma moving to the SEC. We were going to get Texas, Texas A&M back. That was like one of the only times I can think of when realignment worked to reunite something that had previously been broken apart by TV. Um, other stuff has overshadowed it, but you know, when Texas and Texas A&M went away, I mean, that, that was a terrible, terrible blow to college football. That was, that was a Thanksgiving tradition going back deep into the annals of this game. And it was blowing off like, well, what are you going to do? A&M took this TV deal. They took that TV deal. I guess we lost the rivalry. You know, for guys like us, we watched that and just went horrified, you know, like just watched a city get bombed or something. He's like, how can you not be upset about this? Hey, call me crazy. I was horrified when Mizzou left to the SEC and KU and Mizzou no no longer played every year. I mean, to me, I thought that was sacrilege. I know most you know, fans of Blue Bloods probably scoff at that. But to me, that was part, a integral part of the history of college football. I'm with that 100%. That that goes exactly along with what we're talking about, even deeper levels, the border war between Kansas and Missouri. This goes back into American history, the and, Jayhawkers. You know, this is, that was a rivalry that was a geographical rivalry and a historical rivalry between the actual people who built these states. So it was, it was deeper than that football game. And that's exactly what we're talking about. That's the kind of stuff where they throw that in the garbage, like it's nothing. And it's like, you are actually stripping out the DNA of this game right. and pretending like you didn't do anything. It's something that, um, I don't know if I've come full circle. I've maybe come half or two-thirds circle with Nebraska fans. There's a ton of Nebraska fans that I get along great with and I've built really good friendships with. And in doing that, I realized what they went through. I mean, when they got – I don't want to say rip. They left on their own accord because they knew it was the financially right thing to do. I still think they made the right decision. I think, I think most Nebraska fans believe that as well. With that being said – Nebraska, Oklahoma, Nebraska, I mean, Colorado, you know, was getting going. Nebraska named the Big 8, Big 12 team. I mean, they no longer were with their rivals that they grew up with, and they had a lot of them. And then all of a sudden, they're in the Big 10, and they have to remake. So I do get Nebraska fans' point of view that they've 
they've been difficult to integrate themselves into the Big Ten because you're talking about uh, um, the most committed, one of the most committed fan bases in college football that then gets ripped off. I just don't think a lot of people outside of Nebraska spend any time thinking about that. Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. It's uh, it's um, you don't want to lightly use words like traumatizing or traumatic, but that's the type of thing that it does to a, a program and a fan base. Those roots are down deep. That's that's the stuff that gets passed down the generations. For most people, I, I mean, I remember I remember in like my earliest days of watching college football, I remember watching like Nebraska clinch a big eight title against Oklahoma and the oranges raining down onto the onto the field in the final minutes of the fourth quarter. And um, growing up understanding that Nebraska, Oklahoma was an institution that that was, that was the game at the end of the year out of the big eight. And mostly it was for major stakes. You talked about the rest of the rivals and that's Colorado came in later and, and, and made a very interesting rivalry in the nineties. All those things were, were stripped away from them. They recruited teams to beat those other teams. Um, those were the stories they told each other. So yeah, moving to the big 10, it's much more than just playing different teams on Saturdays. It's reorienting your university's sort of compass in the United States. I mean, they, they were kind of turned like South by Southeast Southwest, and now they shifted back. They're, they're facing, you know, East by Northeast into the big 10 and they're just looking a totally different direction. So, you know, it's a major, major change. All right. Well, um, let's, uh, Kurt, you got anything to add this? This has been a fantastic conversation. Absolutely loved how you've been able to weave, you know, just history in general into the present day. I, I did not know that's the direction this was going to go, but that, that was fantastic. I, I, I'm glad you guys enjoyed the conversation. I know I did. Um, it was, uh, it was great to finally talk to you guys on this, on this podcast, because I know, you know, we talk on Twitter all the time and we have similar outlooks on college football and, um, I'm glad it went this direction too. Hopefully people understand this is, this is what I'm doing over at fifth down. And, and I, and if this is how you consume college football and understand the game, you know, I, I think it's uh it's a great conversation for that group to have together. All right, Kurt, you got anything you want to add? No, I think that about covers it. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate you being on. All right, Hi, Kurt. I'm Big Kurt. This has been the Eyes on Big Podcast. We'll talk to you soon.